Christ Church Kingwood is a Christ-centered church that seeks to proclaim the gospel in both word and deed by glorifying God and making disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us now as we worship together in the ministry of the word. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. The Lord, help our unbelief. Let us cling tightly to you, Jesus Christ knowing that you will work all things for the good of those who love you. And Lord, we love you because you have loved us so well first. We're grateful, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, good morning. Our sermon text this morning is Galatians 4, 1 through 11. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so they, we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sam. I just prayed with our team before we started that it would be smooth and no distractions, and then I hopped up in front of her, so that's fun. That's humbling. Uh, I'm going to read Acts 4.12. It's been a verse I've been looking at this week. It says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. And so Paul continues in his message to the Galatians in our text today, turning to the same place. And his message is continually Christ alone. It's a lot of the worship songs we sing, those are the verses. And he doesn't back down from the beautiful realities of what happens when our lives intersect with the glory of God. And so we're gonna keep hitting that same pinata, if you will, as well. And so let me pray before we hop back in and hit Galatians chapter four. God, I thank you for this moment this morning. Just to slow down, to be reminded of truth. I pray that your word would guide us. God, I pray that there would be some moments here this morning of just getting to hear you and feel you as a father, to feel your nearness. Father, whether uncomfortable or not, I pray that you would comfort us, that your word would be our guide, that your spirit would be working in this place, and that you would receive all glory. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
So there's a counselor who recently did some counseling for myself, some coaching for our elders and our wives. And after giving some illustrations and comments, he would always stop and pause and say, now does that make sense? And he would slow down a little bit. And it happened several times and I felt bad at first because the guy who's done ministry and been leading in God's church for 50 plus years and he's written books and he's taught for decades. We paid him to come. He's not confident in the analogies that he's giving. And it felt weird at first. He kept asking, now does, does that make sense? And at first we all responded, oh yeah, of course. Like we needed to pat him on the back and make him feel good. But the odd thing is that he's a brilliant man. He has easy illustrations to follow. He's kind, seasoned veteran inside the church and his, the explanations made sense. So he didn't necessarily need to ask the question. So about two days into this, I had this humbling reality that he wasn't doing this for himself. He was doing this for me. He was actually giving us space to interject. Grace to say, hey, that, that simple analogy that you just broke down and made it really elementary for us, I'm not following. Can I ask a few questions? Or to just say, hey, that's not computing for me. So he was giving us space. And so as I read Galatians 4, or Galatians, the book of Galatians, I really see that that's what Paul's doing here. He's doing it with every letter that he's written to the church so far. And he'll stop in different moments. And he'll ask the same question or repeat himself. Last week, we studied how the law held us captive for a time and a purpose. And Paul illuminates that by giving two illustrations or two different phrases. He said it imprisoned us, so we were captives. And the law was our guardian, or as John said, our tutor, that watches over us and guides us. And what Paul does in our text today is he simply slows down for a bit as a kind teacher and he asks, Does that make sense? And he says this by explaining himself several times. And honestly, today, he says the same thing we've already studied. But the hard thing is he puts it all in one spot. And so he covers everything he's already said again. But why? Is he repeating himself for his benefit? No, he's repeating it for our benefit, for the Galatians that he's speaking to, for the believers to slow down for a moment and take in what he's saying to give us space to process. And it's much like Sunday morning. It's to stop, have a lull in the week just to remember what's going on and the gravity that God has called us to. And so he opens in our text today with, this, with two words. He says, I mean. And if you remember back, he says it in chapter three as well. And he says the statement, what I mean to say. And so in my young arrogance, when I'm reading that, I'm like, well, Paul, if that's what you meant to say, why couldn't you have saved us time and we jumped to what you meant to say, right? So Carrie is often wanting the cliff notes and I miss out on the deep spiritual truths that God is trying to reveal through his word. And so Paul could have said, instead of I mean, he could have said, does that make sense? Does this make sense? He wrote the book on this stuff, right? He knew this stuff. He knew it made sense. He knew how to explain it. He knew the law better than anyone out there. Jesus himself was Paul's teacher. And so he's doing this for our benefit. And so as a good and wise counselor, counselor, Paul stops in this moment in chapter four. And he asks, does this make sense? And I'm actually gonna go back to verse 29 of chapter three that John preached on last week. And we'll start there today. 
And it says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And then chapter four. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. So Paul gives them this new example, saying that this heir is like a child who, who will inherit a small fortune. And technically, it is already his. It's already promised to him. But for the sake of being a child, parents in this room, you know it would not be good if you gave your parents a lot of freedom and a lot of money. It just will not go well. So in wisdom, for a time, the father places the child under the care of people who will train him who will teach him how to eat, maybe how to serve, how to be kind, how to be proper in public. And when he gets older, how to handle money, how to deal with business, how to engage in relationships. And they make him study furiously, enslave him to strict rules, regulations, and schedules so that when that time comes, when that money is his, when the freedom is there to enjoy what he has been promised, that he is fully equipped Rightly, hand, rightly able to handle the weight and responsibility of what his parents are offering to him. And so Paul is saying this child, this heir, is no better off during this childhood than a slave. Under guardians, told what to do, when to eat, when to study, how to dress, when to do work, always under the supervision of someone else, and he remains in this slave-like state until Paul says, until the date set by his father. And then we go on to verse three. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to elementary principles of the world. And so just like this child, we have been under this bondage that he's described it as. And although a savior would come, although the promise has been made, that there is freedom to come for us, God intentionally put the law to work for a season to enslave us, to teach us for our good, but only for a season we were in training and bondage, a bondage to the law. And Paul has taken many words to describe what the law is in chapter three. It's tutor, custodian, guardian, but that's not the point. And I think if you've been here the last three or four weeks, you're saying, let's move on, right? I don't need to talk about the law anymore. But there's purpose to it. It's not the final chapter. And from it, we needed redemption, as Galatians 3.24 said, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Even though it has held us captive, it was purposeful. It was for our good. It was from God. But then right in the same verse, if you look at that in verse 3 and in verse 9, Paul refers to the law as weak and worthless or elementary. And the King James Version, I love this phrasing, it says weak and beggarly. And so it makes me want to ask the question, am I reading that? We're saying it's good, it's purposeful. But is Paul saying it's bad? Weak and beggarly does not sound wonderful. And so obviously it is good because it's from God. But Paul is saying it's weak because it has no power to redeem us. He's, he's waking up the Galatians to say, why are you going back there? 
The law was worthless and beggarly because the law has no riches to give you, right? It's merely a tool. Paul describes it here as elemental, basic. So the law wasn't the goal. It doesn't fix us. It doesn't solve our sin problem. It was put in place by God to expose our need and to reveal his glory. So if the law was grade school, Paul is making the argument that faith and communion with God is upper education. And this phrase, elemental principles, here in verse 3 could be taken two ways. And there's a lot of time we could spend on this part, but I won't. He's appealing to pagan culture and Jewish culture at the same time, and he's putting that all together in this statement about elemental principles. But you could take it, one, as we're a student, where the law is teaching us in an elementary classroom setting, the ABCs of how to live. Or two, it could be taken as the building blocks of life, particles, the makeup of who we are, minerals, elements, which works both ways in this scenario because Paul's appealing to two different crowds that are studious and some that are pagan culture that look to these elements of the earth, earth, wind, and fire. And these basic makeups that were supposed to enhance and grow us, what God made to be stepping stones onto bigger and better things, sin put a foot in the door. In verse 8, skipping, skipping ahead a little bit, says they end up enslaving us to gods instead of God himself. And so the law becomes our jailer. So where God is graciously using this law to reveal sin and push man towards Christ, Satan uses that law or our good works or morality or trying to measure up to shame to push us towards shame and despair. Paul is saying where God uses the law to lead us to freedom, Satan's using this same law to continually keep you captive. And so it leads us to verse 4 where he says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. For hundreds of years, man was under control of its guardians and managers. Hard and exhausting years. If you're following with us in the Bible reading plan, right now it's just like, oh, it's brutal. It's, we've walked through so many chapters and chapters and books of just oppression and being under captivity. But finally, the day has arrived set by the father for the child to be freed up to receive the promise of his heirship. And one moment came to mind as I was thinking on that, not even the same because I didn't receive an inheritance. I just received a lot of uh, college debt. But I remember leaving my parents' driveway and heading out to Texas A&M, making that two-hour drive to College Station. And the freedom that that felt was quite terrifying because, like, what do I do with this? For 18 years, I had been under someone else's control, and all of a sudden you're say, go. I was like, what is this, Right? So I think we all have some type of moment. Maybe it wasn't college. Uh, maybe for some of you, it's getting for you kids. Maybe you got your own room. You're like, I got my own room, right? Maybe it's your own bed. I mean, for some of us, it's small. That's how I felt. We had four kids, so just to have any space was like freedom, right? Or maybe it was marriage. Maybe it was your wedding day to finally be out of your family and into a new family. 
Maybe it's this church finding rest, coming into a family of believers, or you got the job promotion, or somebody gave you a large sum of money that freed up your budget, and that you could breathe. There was a weight taken off of you. The day had come. The excitement was building for the Savior that everyone had longed for, but why were they longing? Because they were exhausted by the law, right? They had been in captivity for so long. Scripture says the angels were leaning over their seats, longing to see how God was going to pull this all together. And if we're looking at the timing on this, Rome was the world leader at this time. They were growing in power. They were rich. They were building roads to make travel easier. The Greek language and culture had brought an ability to relate for these nations like never before. The cities were starting to get mixed with different types of people, so not just the same groups of people. The Greek and Roman gods had continually come up short for their idol worshipers, and so the people were longing for something deep to just hold on to that was true, that they could relate to. Commerce was growing, so countries were engaging daily through trade and export, and the law had worn the people of God out for hundreds of years, so they were just tired. They longed for relief. And so the nations were more ready than ever, and you see this building, and this time was here. And Paul says in verse 4, two things. God, one, first, he sent forth his son to redeem and adopt, but not just to save us from our sins and redemption, but fully removing our shame, restoring dignity and giving us his name through adoption. But he didn't just do that by saying, poof, right? He's relational. He's made us relational beings. And so what he did in this vivid display of his love is he sends forth his son, as Paul is saying here. And not just any son, but Emmanuel, God with us, born to a woman, Paul says, so that we can relate, human as well as God. And he goes on and he says, born to a Jewish woman, living in a land oppressed by the Romans, which meant Jesus would submit to the very rulers and authority of the people that he came to set free. That would end up being his own murderers. And so he became a curse for the cursed. Divinely appointed to be man's complete and sufficient savior. Just at the right time. And one of the commentators that I was reading, he describes it this way, just to paint the picture of who this Christ was. If he had not been man, he could not redeem man. If he had not been a righteous man, he could have not redeemed unrighteous men. And if he had not been God's son, he could not have redeemed men for God or made them sons of God. So Christ was the success where all man before him and since him have came up short. It's a beautiful reality of what we're seeing in this text. God was bringing it to this moment, and so all eyes are on Jesus. And then secondly, in, into verse 6, he sends his spirit. He says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so in verse 4 and 6, he uses that same word as he's sending out the son and the spirit. God the Father working at the same time the Son comes to minister, at the same time the Spirit is affirming our sonship in Christ so that we can cry, Abba, Father. 
Those are the same words that Christ is crying out in the garden. And it's more of him saying, daddy, daddy. It's more of an inf- or a toddler crying out to say, help. And in Romans 8, 15, Paul says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And I love that that puts us on the same level as Jesus Christ, that we have access to God as Jesus has access to God. And so as a help and confirmation, God sends his spirit, which drives us to the Father, where we are finally able to shed those chains that we're seeing in chapter three and embrace him as sons and daughters. And that same spirit is the same spirit that ushered in creation in Genesis. It's the same spirit that walked with Moses and David and Paul and Abraham, the same spirit that moved through Pentecost, the same spirit that came, descended on Jesus at his baptism, confirming this time that Paul's talking about right here. We have the Father, Spirit, and Son working together, the triune God on display through the love of Jesus by the confirmation of the Spirit of God. And now that same spirit is in us. That's where I'm humbled this week. We have that spirit advocating for us. The same spirit that affirmed Jesus is in us, confirming our rights as heirs to this kingdom, reminding us that our freedom from having to be good or to do good enough, keeping us in the bounds headed towards Christ. That's a mercy, amen? which leads Paul to be able to write what we see in verse seven. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God. And in my notes I wrote, praise God, hallelujah. Write your salutation, Paul, right? It's kind of where we we should end. He could wrap it up right now and it would be a great letter. Stamp it, let's do this, send it on. But Paul can't because they weren't listening, they're missing it. He says, oh foolish Galatians, you are free, not by works of the law or by making a name for yourself or by being really good moral people, but because we have a God that has called you son. And then he heads into verse nine through 11, which is the last verses of our text today. But now that you have come to know God or rather be known by God, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slaves you want to be be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Can you hear the pain? Paul contrasts verse eight, if you look back there, with verses nine. And he uses that same phrase that John talked about last week in verse 25 of chapter three, but now. Formerly, you did not know God, but now you do know God. Formerly, you were enslaved, but now God has sent his son to redeem you and adopt you. Once we were hopeless, but now we are hopeful through the Spirit. You're a prisoner set free. How can you turn back to the things that wore you out and held you in chains is what Paul is saying. You observe days and months and seasons and years. 
So essentially, they've allowed their religion, their relationship with the Lord to become boiled down to this ritual of duty that aims to look good for their parents, for the culture, for coworkers or friends, for status, maybe for kids. And so instead of a joyous relationship, walking in freedom with our Heavenly Father, they traded it in for something else. And it wears Paul out to the point that he writes this, I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Can you imagine if your mom said that to you, right? How crushing would that be? It's not something you want to hear. So Paul's stopping here for a moment to say, does that make sense? You getting this? Can you understand why Paul's perplexed, he'll say later, tired, discouraged? Have you ever given someone so much of your time and they've just walked away? Do you remember that pain, sadness, anger? When our hearts want the best for that person and they don't even want it for themselves. And so Paul, he's having to start over again. He's already been with them once and he's having to go through this again. And I just had the thought, I don't have teenagers yet, but if there's a 16, 17 year old in this room and someone came to you today, parents and said, hey, I'm sorry, we're gonna have to do the last 16 years over. <laughs> My thought was, y'all would probably be like, what? No, that's ridiculous, right? That would just be laughable. But what if they were serious? Like, yeah, we're doing this. This is where Paul finds himself. It's like, it doesn't, that, that's heartbreaking, right? That goes out the window? Have I labored over you in vain? And so the question here as we look at our text is how do we protect ourselves from going where the Galatians find themselves? How do we stop entrusting ourselves to the law that is beggarly? that is lacking the ability to provide. Paul's main thing here is faith. We spend time with the one who is not beggarly or weak, that can, who can afford all things. And one way I see this is there is purpose in daily Bible reading. And that might sound like a modern churchy thing to say, but that's been God's plan from the beginning. Come spend time with me. And not just a plan we print out for you and stick on the back table and you stick to it for a year, right? But spending time with God through study of word, it changes us. God commands us in his word to teach these things. We see that back in the Old Testament. Write these things and put them up in your house. Write them on your hearts. Read them out loud. Revelation will say, if you read this out loud, you are blessed. By God's word, Paul is able to stay focused. That's why he continues to write the same things to the churches He's able to articulate deep truths and hold them tightly because he has thoroughly memorized God's word. He's much like the Psalm 1 man that meditates on it day and night. That's where his strength comes from. God's word also shows us a lot of other things that provide grace through the Lord, that provide protection through the Lord, honoring our fathers and mothers, meeting together, taking care of widows and orphans, giving of our time and money, fasting, prayer, which is communing with God by his spirit through his word, which ends up aligning us with the will and power of God. 
So submitting to these mercies of God, that's Paul's push. Go to the thing that can provide. Go to the person who can provide rather than to deficient things of the law or of this world or of sin. So practically, I think, I don't, I'm not asking you to do more, but Paul is asking us to be efficient of source. Do the thing that makes sense. One way I, I see that is with Bible reading. I, I would encourage you all to go read Romans 8. It is this and then a million times more. Paul breaks it down even further, and it's so beautiful. It makes so much more sense to just go read the fullness of Scripture around this topic of being set free and receiving an inheritance. It might look like this week of going to support people in this church. Uh, Tuesday night, you have an opportunity to go to a foster care informational and just hear Christian and Morgan say, this is how we submit to the Lord, and we need help, and here's our story. It would be a huge encouragement just to simply be there and say, hey, how can we make sense? Or how can we make sense of this for you all? And how can we relate? And so I just encourage you this week to maybe just slow down, to maybe ask the question to yourself, does this make sense? Do I believe this? That's what I asked my small group this week. Do you all believe this? Do, you, do we understand Am I reading this right, that God loves me so much? He has done all of this for my good and for his glory? And so I pray as we engage the Lord through his word, as we engage through relationship, that our eyes and our hearts would rush to the same conclusion that scripture is. It's Jesus, right? It's all pointing there, that we would be filled with anticipation for Jesus to come, for all to be made right, changed to be people fueled by the power of God's spirit. You have God's spirit filled with a peace and endurance from Jesus himself. So I don't think we can afford any more days of submitting to things that cannot provide. They're weak and beggarly, insufficient. So I just want to remind you this morning that you are heirs. You are children of God. So place your trust and hope again in the Lord. He is good. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your love towards us. It would be easy to look at all of this and say, I must be the point. Jesus loves me. He came for me. Look at all that God has done for me. Look what he's calling me to do and freeing me from. But God, that would be not enough insufficient. I pray this week that we would get some time to just be near you, to be reminded of who we are. I pray that you would comfort us, that you would strengthen us, that this week would be a moment of relief, of sitting with you and understanding where we're going, to be reminded that this is not it, that Jesus is coming back for us and he will make all things new, that this mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body that you promised to the Israelites, to the Jews, that we are now partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I pray that would be a humbling reality from every child in here to every adult. God, that we would be families and members of the body of Christ that are confident in what you've called us to, that we would not throw it away as Hebrews says, 
but be confident, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. God, we thank you. We praise you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God from Thank you for worshiping with us through the preaching of God's Word. We exist to glorify God by making disciples. We would love to have you join us in person as we gather together on Sundays at 10 a.m. at the Covenant Preparatory School on Hamblin Road in Kingwood, Texas. To learn more about Christ Church Kingwood, visit our website at ChristChurchKingwood.org.